Good morning. They keep telling us it's fall. I don't believe them. Maybe soon, maybe soon. Hey, made a couple of quick last-minute changes to the, the message today. First of all, I was really contemplating wearing that box while I preached, but I feared I might drop my notes, and then it's over, just going off memory. And then the second one is I got some pictures to show you that I took actually weeks ago. I won't show you them quite yet. I don't read the scripture first, but I took these pictures weeks and weeks ago, and I was going to work it in somehow, but I think I'm going to work it in this morning and uh, just before we pray because I really want us to, to open our hearts and our minds to, to what the Lord is going to say today. So let's start with the text today. Our text is Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31, and it's titled The Greatest Commandment. It says, uh, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other one but him. Uh, To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's our text. The pictures I wanted to show you before we, we preach, it's actually a, zoom, a zoomed out version and then we're gonna get closer and closer and closer. There's four in all. And let's go ahead and throw the first one up and I'll show you kind of in context what in the world we're talking about. This is me <coughs> pointing at a screen. But in a second, there'll be a picture up there. <laughs> this is a picture of what I see when I'm sitting in this chair right here. And uh, this is my view. And when they put these, these beautiful, uh, this new stage and this, this beautiful wood in here, um, it took me a few weeks, but I found something. Uh, like, have you ever seen those pictures of like um, someone cooked the toast and like Jesus' face was in the toast and they're like, oh, like put plexiglass around it and let's worship it and make it a relic, right? And then you've seen the shroud with, uh, where someone wiped their face. And, just, and then there's, like, there's a picture of Jesus. Well, this is the picture that I see. And if you look closely... Um, you're going to see something hidden in there. This is a little closer. Look towards the right side, maybe the right bottom. Keep going a little closer. Do you see it yet? Anybody raise your hand if you see something yet before I really point it out to you. And then finally go one more closer. Do you see that right there? That to me looks like a lamb. And for weeks and weeks and even months and months, I've sat there and been reminded that Jesus Christ is our lamb. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And he came and he shows up in unexpected places. And uh, so, yeah, after church, you can come up here and, and show. I also thought it was, you know, my mind runs. And I also found myself thinking, you know what? Not only is it the Lamb of God, not only is it hidden amongst all this other wood, but it's on the bottom step because he came not to be served, but to serve. And my mind just going and I'm just thinking of all these great things. But, yeah, it's right in here. If you got, yeah, right here, right there. And if you want to look at that later... You're welcome to. All right, so before we get into breaking down Mark chapter 12, which is what I want to do today, I want us to look at those four components because Jesus came and he said, hey, this is the most important. 
love the Lord your God. And then he tells us what's important to him and he breaks it into four categories. And so I wanna just talk about those four categories and really just so that we can look at our own lives and say, where am I, where am I hitting the mark and where am I missing? What can I do a little better and, uh, and, and, and where can I just be encouraged that I'm in the doing it right? And so we're gonna look at that in a little bit, but before we get there, I wanted to take you guys uh, through a little journey of the life and times of Jesus. God sent his son, and he could have placed him at any point in human history, at any point along the timeline. Could have dropped him in the Middle Ages, uh, could have dropped him uh, 500 years before the last Pharaoh, 500 years after. He could have dropped him 10 years after Moses. He could have dropped anywhere. He could have put him in 1985. Can you imagine if he would have put him in 1985? That would have been pretty cool. But he didn't. He could have put him anywhere, but he put him right where he did. He inserted him into our, his, in our timeline right where he did. And it reminds me of this scripture in Galatians 4, which says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Could have put him anywhere, and yet he placed him right where he did. Now, it's either haphazardly, by chance, or he had a plan, and he had a purpose, and I'm voting that he had a plan, and he had a purpose, right? You guys with me? Now, if you study this, you'll find that there are three widely accepted reasons why Jesus chose to put, uh, or God chose to place Jesus right where he did. The first one is the Pax Romana, the second one is the common Greek language, and the third one is the Roman road system. I want to talk about those just real briefly. You've heard this stuff before, but then I want to add a fourth one, which I think plays a pretty big role. The Pax Romana is basically just means Roman peace. Jesus was placed in a, in a 200, roughly 200-year 200 period of relative peace and stability in this empire. It started with Augustus in 27 BC, it ended with Aurelius in 180 AD, and there really was this general level of peace. Were there skirmishes on the fringes? Yes. But there was this stability that had found its way into the empire, and when there's stability, things begin to flourish and, and propagate and, and ideas and arts and culture can grow, those sorts of things. When my parents were missionaries in West Africa, part of the time we were there, much of the time we were there, it was really dicey. It was very unstable. And, uh, and, then, and because there was military coups, and you know, the truth is, whenever you're just trying to survive, you don't have time for the arts and to debate the deeper things of life and you're just trying to feed your family, you're trying to stay safe, you're trying to have a, a roof over your head, but stability allows for these growths and these developments to happen. In countries today, and including countries way back there and empires way back there where, where, where Christ was inserted into our timeline. Uh, we coincidentally went back about 20 years later, my dad and I, and this is about 10 years ago, and when we, were, when we went back, the road systems had developed, the schools were getting better, the businesses were flourishing, uh, there were restaurants, there were theaters, it was just amazing what happens when you have stability. And so God, knowing the history, knowing the landscape of our world, he places Jesus uh, in this, this spot where he does, and one of the reasons was the Pax Romana. The other thing I mentioned earlier was the common Greek language. They were speaking Greek. Greek is a really efficient, very beautiful language, and because the, because the language didn't change every 30 miles or 300 miles, the, the message of God could spread pretty rapidly. And so the Greek language, a lot of people attribute that to one of the reasons why God chose that point in history. And so it wasn't just the peace, it was also the Greek language, and then also the third one is the Roman road system. You've heard the things that all roads lead to 
Rome, yeah. It's because all roads led to Rome. That's the reason they say that, because that's what it does, because they built roads, a lot of them. And, uh, and again, it allowed for the spread of ideas. It's spread of the gospel specifically. So these are the three things that are widely uh, given for the reason why God chose that point in history. I want to add a fourth. I think the fourth reason is because humanity had hit rock bottom. It was getting really messed up. Uh, and, uh, and I think because of that, I think that plays a big role. I want to read to you out of a book that Des gave to me years and years and years ago. It's called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And this is volume one uh, by an author named Edersheim. I want to read you three or four little, little uh, pieces from it. And I just want to lay the foundation of like, this is the day, this is the time, this is the sentiment, this is what was going on when Jesus was sent to the earth. So here's a few things. In both the Roman world and in Palestine, the time had fully come. We just read about the time fully coming in, in Galatians 4.4. 4. But the time had fully come, not in the sense of any special expectancy, but of absolute need. The reign of Augustus marked not only the climax, but the crisis of Roman history. Whatever of good or of evil the ancient world contained had become fully ripe. In politics, philosophy, religion, and society, the utmost limits had been reached, and beyond them lay only ruin or regeneration. This is Josh speaking, not the Lord, but had the Lord not said that he was not gonna come back a second time with a flood, I think the world was in a place where a flood was possibly necessary for the cleansing and all that because the Lord was so uh, upset with the way human condition was and, and humanity had just hit rock bottom. Things were really bad and yet judgment and ruin was not on God's mind. Regeneration was, a rescue was. Here, let me keep reading a little bit more from these, from these books. The author goes on and just talks about the general decay of society. Here's a sample of which. I left a couple of big words in there just because I know it's Family Worship Sunday. If I broke it down a little clearer, it would be clearer. But that may not be beneficial. <laughs> it has been rightly said that the idea of conscience as we understand it was unknown to, the he to heathenism. Absolute right did not exist. Might was right. The sanctity of marriage had ceased. Female licentiousness and general unfaithfulness led at last to an almost entire cessation or ending of marriage. Abortion and the exposure and murder of newly born children were common and tolerated. Unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated, attained proportions which defy description. But among these sad signs of the times, three must be specially mentioned. The treatment of slaves, the attitude towards the poor, and public amusements. Talking about the gladiatorial games where they just killed people uh, for sport goes on, and this is again, I'm picking things from the, from the book. Utter hopelessness, utter despair was everywhere. The thinkers of the day, Seneca, Cicero, Tacitus, all desired reform, but they knew their society could not reform itself. Edersheim says, the world's philosophies and religions had nothing to offer. They had been tried and found wanting. He goes on to say, the institutions of the Roman world had no answers. Religion, philosophy, society had passed through every stage to that of despair. Humanity had hit rock bottom. It's bad when you, you have a longing 
it's really bad when you've tried to feed that longing and nothing's worked and they've tried everything. Everything had run to its full course. Everything had been tried. Everything was fully ripe and the world was in this rock bottom, messed up place and this and into this moment is where the Lord sent his one and only son to redeem the world and I'm glad he did. So the four reasons, the Pax Romana, the Greek language, the Roman system, and the fact that, that, that the humanity had just hit an absolute rock, bo- uh, rock bottom takes us to the lowest point in human history, and that's when God sent his help. I want to send out a little encouragement this morning. Some people, because it comes up in conversations quite often, are absolutely overwhelmed by the sense that our country has hit, an, has hit rock bottom. And, and even to the point of no return, and even to the point of just great despair and frustration. Some people have come to that same conclusion about their family. Some people have come to the same conclusion about their work situation. And I wanna remind you guys today, in a bit of encouragement before we break out Mark chapter 12, that the Lord is still saving. The Lord is still restoring. The Lord is still renovating. He's reconciling, he's healing, he's redeeming. The Lord is still forgiving, calling, equipping, leading. The Lord is still reaching. And if he reached to the time of the Romans, when it was honestly probably worse than it is today, he's still reaching today. And you know what? More than that, he's still on his throne. He's still on his throne. And you know what? Before, and, and even more than that, he's still worthy of your love. He's still worthy of your praise. He's still the one God, the one and only God. And he's still deserving of our love. And so Jesus Christ is going to unpack this whole idea of the greatest commandment here in a minute. And, uh, and we're going to look at it. And we're going to look in ourselves and say, you know what? How am I doing? How am I doing? And so I just wanted to remind you before we get there that it is into this climate, this messed up, dark, spiritually nasty, gross, dead Roman climate that God sent his son. And I think it was on purpose. And so a guy comes up to Jesus and says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Now you'll see it again in Matthew 22. You'll see it in Luke 10. Uh, is it a, gen- is it a, a genuine re- uh, request? It looks like it in Mark 12. I know in the other two passages it looks like someone trying to trap Jesus. And he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to rec- recognize first off that this, this teaching, uh, well, first of all, the question is not that uncommon to the time. Uh, religious leaders and scribes, they would, they would sit around and just debate things like this. You know, hey, what's, what's the ranking of the commandments? And a lot of times we think of 10 commandments, but there's 613. 613 commandments that they've come up with to follow, and they would sit around and literally rank them and put them in order and argue and stuff, and it was just kind of fun for them. Uh, and, and not only that, but they would also say, hey, can you try to like take all these commandments and like make it really succinct into one sentence? One, one rabbi said, see if you can share the entire, all the commandments or the importance of the commandments while standing on one leg. Uh, it was just, just, can you get it really short? And so they come to Jesus with this really fun question, and Jesus nails it, and they all know he nails it. And so what he does is he pulls back from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and he pulls back into Leviticus. And I'm going to go and just read those two to you. Because, you know, Jesus was a Jew, and so he knew his stuff, and he's talking to a Jewish uh, group here. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that he would quote the word, and it would be something that they would have understood. So it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
Now you can talk to Marty later why the word mind wasn't in there and why Jesus added it later, mainly because I don't know. (laughs) And then the other scripture is Leviticus 18, 19. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against, against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus answers this question by combining two things that they were familiar with and, uh, and he gives it. And t- to this credit, I mean, this guy says, wow, that's a good answer. That was really good. And so let's look at that scripture that Jesus gave and let's break it down into four quadrants, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I wanna give you a very elementary uh, explanation of kind of what I think these four quadrants mean. And so that again, that so we can look deep inside ourselves and say, how am I doing? Ask that question. So first of all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. What that means is, he must be your greatest desire. Jesus must be your premier passion. He's gotta be number one, he's gotta be the boss, he has to be the Lord. I think several months ago we talked about how, the, someone talked about how the Lord is our savior, or he's our savior and our Lord, Jesus is our savior and our Lord, and there's been times in my life where, to be honest, he was my savior, but he wasn't my Lord. Well, then he's neither. <laughs> He doesn't, he doesn't play that game. He wants to be both. And so to love the Lord with my heart means he's my greatest desire, my greatest passion, number one, boss, he's my Lord. I think we understand that one pretty well. I think we, I think we understand it. I don't know if we always do it well, but I think we understand that one. Second one, love the Lord your God with all your soul. I think that to love him with my soul is to love him down to the core of who I am. My identity is, is, is wrapped around him. That's what I feel like, it's my soul, it's my deepest longings, it's my deepest emotions, it's my deepest convictions. My focus and my drive is, is I'm driven by him. That's what I think that is, love him with my soul. And that's to me the, it's hard to put words on it, it's kind of the deep, spiritually, feely kind of part of the love, but it's an important part of the love. So I'm supposed to love him with my heart, I'm supposed to love him with my soul. Then it goes to mind. Mine is different than the feelings. It's different than the passions and the desires and, and uh, the emotions. The mind is, it's this, uh, this, this, uh, this desire to dedicate myself to know him more, to love him with my mind. It's, uh, it's a willingness to study his word so that I can know him better. So if I'm gonna walk out tomorrow and say, you know what, Lord, I wanna love you better with my mind. It means I'm gonna put myself in a place where I'm willing to study to know him more. You know, you can know him more by experience and in worship, and you can. You really can, and I have. But you can also know him more as you study. As Des used to tell me, I remember whenever I, right before I went back to school, Des says, Josh, grow your mind, commensurate with your heart. And so, <laughs> learn something new about God, express that new knowledge, allow it to trickle into your worship for God. And as you worship God, then you're gonna wanna go learn more about him because you fall in love with him more and you know him better. And then as you learn something new, you're gonna, and so I actually remember coming to a service one day and I worshiped the Lord. I was trying to practice this. I had just studied about retribution theology and it was really fun and Marty's laughing and it was out of the book of Job and I remember walking into a worship set and my desire was, I'm gonna worship you God today through the doctrine and through the understanding, my new understanding of retribution theology. And I just weave my entire worship experience around that. Was it geeky? Yes. Was it nerdy? Yes. But was it real? It was. It was one of the best worship experiences I'd had in a long time because it wasn't just emotionally or desire or passion driven. It was this desire to 
to connect with my mind and to worship God with our mind. Jesus says it, worship with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think if any of these areas that we fall short in American culture, it's with the mind. I think we have separated this idea that we've, we've said, well, that, the, the faith is over here and the, and the secular stuff is over here. You know, the, the important faith, feely, emotion stuff is over here, but the mind is over here. And I think we've separated it and it's our, to our detriment. I think there is, there's this big circle. If we're doing all four of these things well, they feed each other and they, and they allow us to express our love to the Lord. And, if, we can, and if, we, if you feel like you've neglected that area, well, the good news is, just make any effort you can and you're gonna just start to, just start to really experience some new levels of worship. So here's, here's a few tips. I wanna please my God with my thoughts. That's worshiping the Lord with your mind. I wanna just, just actively trying to please him with your thoughts. I wanna honor God with my ideas. I wanna make decisions based on his word and not my feelings. These are all things that'll help you and help me worship with my, my, with my mind. I wanna learn and correct incorrect ideas that I have about God. Like if, you, like if you're struggling because God the Father uh, is his title and you're like, oh man, my dad was really mean and that, you have an incorrect idea and if, until you address it, it's gonna affect your, your worship. And so loving him with your mind is basically just uh, not basically, it's a whole lot deeper than this, but, it, but one way of looking at it is I wanna use my mind to get closer to the Lord and I wanna honor him with my mind. So that's the third one. The fourth one is this, strength. That means he gets your best effort. If you wanna love him with all your strength, he gets your best effort. He gets your best energies. Even when you're challenged, even when you're persecuted, even when you're tired, even when you don't feel like it, he gets your best. That's how we love the Lord with our strength. I think at 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. I think of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God with your best efforts and your best energies, no matter what you're feeling. So these are the four things, and that's my text for today. I'm really, really excited that the Lord broke this down for us. Because I think if you look into these things and you study these things and you just try your best to get as close to Jesus and to express your love in these ways, I think we will benefit greatly. And I'm really excited that this guy asked the question and I'm really excited that they stuck around to listen to the answer. Because you know, there's other times in the scripture, like in, uh, oh, where was it? John 18, 38. Pilate asked this wonderful question. He says, what is truth? And I can almost see it, like Jesus is like just about to answer it and then he just kind of walks off and addresses the Jews. And I'm going, oh, 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 Pilate, go back. Go back and ask that question again. I mean, I, we can deduce what truth is based on his word, but like wouldn't you have loved to hear what Jesus had to say about it? I mean, because you know it would have been succinct and it would have been amazing, it would have been beautiful, but he walked away. Well, not in this case. They asked him, what's the greatest commandment? I mean, how, I mean, that's a great question. In other words, I, only, I know my limitations. I know I only got this much to offer, but what's the greatest commandment? What should I really be focusing on? And then we have Jesus himself saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all, and all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. I am so glad that we have that. That is a fantastic, uh, a fantastic teaching, and I'm, and I'm glad they stuck around to listen. All right, so the, I think that Jesus came when he did, and it, I think it was on purpose, because the world had hit rock bottom, and I believe the table was completely set 
for people to most uh, effectively uh, recognize Jesus and to receive Jesus. Did they all? No, no they didn't. Uh, in fact, just, just like the, the lamb on the steps here. Is Jesus here, is he in every situation? Yes, do we always see him? No, you have to be looking for him and then he has to open our eyes, we know all that. But, um, but it, then it takes me back to Galatians 4, uh, 4 and 5 which says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sonship. So in conclusion, in conclusion, I was thinking about us, and while we don't live in the Roman times, we live in our own interesting time in history. And I was also remembering that just as God on purpose placed Jesus in the human timeline right where he did, he also placed you here in this day, in this generation, in this city on purpose. And if you don't believe me, let me take you to Acts chapter 17. This is about as clear as it gets, and I'll make one final point. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if needing anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. I wanna encourage you guys as a church. First of all, I'm proud of this church. I love being at this church. We just finished a round of, of uh, new members classes and I just, I just love the fact that, uh, that Bethesda is what it is, what she is. It's just a beautiful place, but I think you guys need a reminder today that you're here for a reason and you're here for a purpose. And if we will so uh, grab hold of this concept of what it is to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also love our neighbors as ourselves, it will radically change what our family looks like, what our work situation looks like, and what our world even looks like. And kind of to prove it, I wanted to read from you one more uh, passage out of a different book. This, this is a collection of old ancient writings, and the one I wanna share with you just a little bit out of is called The Epistle to Diognetus, or Diognetius Potato to Potato, I don't know. <clears throat> but I want you to hear this, and what I want you to grab hold of is this is probably 180 years uh, AD, second century, maybe third century, there's a little bit of debate. But when you read this, I want you to recognize that we know what the early church looked like, right? Out of Acts chapter two, we know what the early church looked like. This is 150, 250 years later. And I want you to look at their characteristics. This is a letter found and preserved over time, and it kind of gives you a snapshot of what this church looked like in the second and third century. And I think all I wanna do is say, you know what? Lord, may we look like that. May we look more like that as well. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read a, a long paragraph, and I think you're gonna find this really interesting. If you wanna read the rest of it, again, it's called the, the Epistle of Diognetus, and it's about 12 pages long. It's not a really long uh, reading, and it's really a fascinating read. So here you go. Again, this is just talking about the church. They, oh gosh, where to start? How about here? They marry like everyone else and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. 
Now again, remember how, how wretched the Roman times were? If you want to do a study on the Romans, we have an issue with abortion in our country today. They had an issue, even more so, even more ripe. Because again, I think that the world had, humanity had just hit rock bottom at that point. They marry like everyone else and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board, room and board, their food. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown, and still they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and in their dishonor are glorified. They are defamed and are vindicated. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies and are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. It's a picture of the early church. And it's a picture of what we ought to look like and do look like in many ways still today. You know, before I close that, I wanted to draw, draw your attention in case you missed it to, to four, four things. I'll have to go off of memory. The early church, this, this, this church, they were known by their love. They were known by their extreme generosity. They were known by, their, uh, by no racism, no racism. They loved all men. Did you catch that part? They were multi-ethnic. And in fact, the rest of the letter goes on and talks about how they have no country. <laughs> They're from everywhere. They're all over the place. They're absence of racism, extreme generosity, an, un- an, an unusual view of sex, and a high view of life. Isn't that interesting? These people are just a, a couple of centuries removed, and this is what history writes about them. They view intimacy different, They're super generous, even though they're poor. They love everybody. Even though we live in this this world in Roman times where slavery was just awful, awful. It's awful anyway, but it it was really, really, really bad. And they love everybody, and they have a high view of life. It's interesting that that in in the darkest times, we shine. So, in conclusion, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. 